just wish that pop was here right now to see this good crop that we finally got. Good God Almighty, man, <laughs> will you look at them beans? Man, look at that coat. <laughs> and them watermelons must be at least three feet low. <laughs> man, look at them tomatoes. This is hell. The planet's on fire, so yes, this is hell, and the effects of our burning planet are causing major problems for the supply chain that we depend upon for our stuff, like accessibility to affordable food, the ability to power and heat our homes, or just to get from one place to another. You may have heard that after a grueling 24 hours, hundreds of Virginia drivers who'd been left stranded on snow-covered highways were finally freed from that ordeal. As the New York Times reported, a 40-mile stretch of the highway, one of the busiest travel corridors in the United States, came to a standstill overnight after a fast-falling snowstorm led to jackknifed tractor trailers and hundreds of other accidents. Some people abandoned their cars. Many, including a U.S. senator, spent the night on the snowy highway as people spent a sleepless night in driver's seats and truck cabs. State troopers slowly trudged from person to person, helping when they could with supplies. Tow trucks dragged car after disabled car out of the ice. Other reports stated that the Virginia Department of Transportation had not salted the roads before, and despite three to four inches of snow being predicted, the agency stated that as temperatures were flirting with freezing, the rain had yet to turn to snow, and had they salted, the salt would have simply been washed away and not had any effect on the snow that followed. They also pointed out that instead of the three to four inches, they got closer to 14 inches of snow for which they were not prepared or warned. It's like the severity of these snowstorms has increased with climate change. The same appears to have happened all along the eastern seaboard with major snowstorms slowing and stopping traffic and daily life seemingly everywhere. You may have also heard that something similar happened back in mid-November, throughout November and into December in British Columbia on Canada's west coast. There, flooding and mudslides combined with rain and snowstorms washed out bridges, made roads impossible, canceled flights, and brought the supply chain to a halt. Yet in major cities like Vancouver, Life seemed to go on without any changes. The wealth and power behind the construction of towering high-rises did not stop, nor did the suffering of those stricken with poverty and homelessness or the impact of all of this on the indigenous who live nearby. In a few minutes, we will discuss the massive inequality and seeming fragility of capitalism when we will be speaking with Aaron Van Singen, who wrote the uneven Earth article, Faith in a Frail World, a journey through British Columbia this November showed how fragile the economy really is. Aaron is an editor of Uneven Earth and writes about cities, food, ecology, and science fiction. Find out more about Uneven Earth at unevenearth.org. He is co-author of the upcoming book, The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism, and is co-editor of Minim Municipalist Observatory. You can learn more about the observatory at Minim hyphen municipalism.org follow Aaron on Twitter at a underscore V A N S I a underscore 
Vancy. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alexander Jerry. Alex, anything new about you? Yeah, I just started uh, Russell Hoban's book, Ridley Walker. You ever heard of it? Nope. Russell Hoban's the guy who did that book, Bread and Jam for Francis, about that little badger who don't want to eat eggs. Nope. Uh, oh, it's a classic from my childhood. Uh, oh, okay. So he also wrote a 1980 book uh, that's set in Kent thousands of years after some sort of nuclear annihilation and the whole thing is written in like a devolved kentish dialogue okay and it's about uh living in the muck after a giant global cat- catastrophe oh so that's pretty some happy reading Just for you cozy reading <laughs> cozy reading when uh, covered by snow wow so it's not it, a children's book that you're reading for your kid at night no that uh, might be causing some trouble uh he just learned recently that the uh, earth is warming Oh, really? So, yeah, it's a fun new stage in explaining things to my kid. Does he uh, think that's bad? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. we're, we're seeing how bad he thinks it is at four years old. Okay. But, uh, not great. Uh, but, yeah, big recommendation to Ridley Walker. Three chapters in, very fun. Ridley, not fun. So who is Ridley Walker? Just a character in the story? Yeah, 12-year-old. Okay. Listeners may have noticed a different sound or tone to my voice this week. It appears that my two-month bout with what has been diagnosed as bronchitis has had lingering side effects, including a really, really sore throat from coughing really, really hard for two months every morning. It's as if I pulled a muscle in my throat from coughing so much. And while the coughing has subsided, the pain has not gone away. Also, I don't know how to do any vocal stretches. I don't know that kind of stuff. So if there's anybody out there who knows how to do any kind of vocal stretches, please send me a link or tell me what to do. Uh, This situation has even forced me to speak a bit differently so it doesn't hurt so much. And you may have picked up on that this week. All of which means I either have to go back to my doctor or see a specialist to find out what the hell is happening. In the meantime, please bear with me as I recuperate from the worst case of bronchitis I've ever had and the debilitating effects that it's having on the way I speak. But more important than me possibly losing my ability to speak, Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what would make your life 1% better? What would make your life 1% better? Do you want to give anybody any background on how you came up with this week's question from hell? Uh, I made a large pot of beans the other day, and it made my life 1% better. (laughs) The pot of beans are all gone, so I'm back down. Yet you didn't answer the question from hell online. You should have answered it. You could have been the winner. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, or the face mask. The coffee mug, the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. And we have some people to thank for their support of This Is Hell. Thanks to Pete L., Brett B. and Magnificent Me for your ongoing support of This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Thanks, Pete, Brett, and Magnificent, if you don't mind me calling you by your first name, Magnificent Me. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff's forbidden words for this year are all numbers. Alex will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell 
Following our conversation with Aaron on the fragility of capitalism, again, the question from hell is, what would make your life 1% better? What would make your life 1% better? Not only can you contact us via email at chuck at thisishell.com, message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishell, tweet at us at thisishellradio, but you can also send us actual stuff in the actual mail by addressing it to this is hell 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2nd floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's this is hell 2251 West Devon Avenue, D-E-V-O-N, 2nd floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Now, we don't know who or why this was sent to us, but we got a graphic novel sent to us in the mail, and its title is Wonder Drug, LSD in the Land of Living Skies by Hugh D.A. Goldring and Nicole Marie Burton. It's the story of Aldous Huxley's experimentation with LSD, which led him to, you guessed it, Saskatchewan. That paradise of psychedelia, Saskatchewan, in the 1950s. Why Saskatchewan? At the time, Saskatchewan was the home of the first socialist government, known as the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, or CCF. Who knew? Under the leadership of Tommy Douglas, who led the province from 1944 to 1964, he is famous for being the founder of Medicare. Again, who knew? He's also known for his concerns for those who are challenged with mental illness and how they were being treated in Saskatchewan's dysfunctional psychiatric wards. This leads to mental health specialists in the institutions to experiment with LSD, which still was a very legal drug and being used widely as a mental therapy. The idea was that the mental health specialists would have a better insight into what they diagnosed as schizophrenia if they tripped and could better treat their patients. Wonder Drug then shares some of those experiences and follows the path of LSD from experimental ment mental health drug to eventually being determined to be a dangerous narcotic and its evolution from being over the counter to completely illegal. It's a fascinating tale of how drug research can go wrong and what happens when a psychedelic drug is misunderstood, especially today as psilocybin is being endorsed by many in the mental health community as a way to address PTSD. So thanks to whoever sent us Wonder Drug LSD in the Land of Living Skies by Hugh D.A. Goldring and Nicole Marie Burton, which is published by between the line books in toronto and listener justin if you were the one who sent us that book please tell me because you said you sent us a package in the mail but i never received it and i'm very concerned as to where that package might be right now we also got a letter in the mail from the baffler magazine a letter that came with a pack of matches with the baffler logo emblazoned upon that pack of matches the letter says dear chuck mertz very formal by now, you should have received the November-December 2021 issue of The Baffler, number 60, The Squandering Earth. This marks the beginning of your subscription, sent compliments of your good friends, The Baffler staff. We hope you enjoy reading this magazine as much as we enjoyed making it. If not, we've enclosed a book of matches. You know what to do. Sincerely, Rosalie at The Baffler. So thank you to the folks at The Baffler for giving us a gift subscription to The Baffler for the next year, but we have yet to receive said November-December 2021 issue, which means we do not need the Book of Matches for the issue to disappear. We just need our local post office or our neighbors who happen to be picking up stuff off of our front porch or taking them from our mail slot. See, Justin, I'm telling you, we're having issues with mail. 
We also got some more prints featuring inspirational quotes from our good friends at Detroit's Kennedy Prints, which we'll, we will be sharing with you following our talk with Aaron. Coming up, the fragility of capitalism in the face of climate change. We'll also tell you what's happening on our exclusive Patreon podcast, which you can subscribe to at patreon.com slash thisishell. And now happens on Thursdays. And some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what would make your life 1% better? What would make your life 1% better? And as I was saying, we'll be sharing some of those inspirational quotes that we received from Kennedy Prince as well. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. Despite the soaring numbers on Wall Street, the world around that market seems to be fading and fast in light of climate change and its myriad effects that are being experienced unequally. The impact of global warming is having an effect on everything, including the supply chain we now depend upon more than ever due to globalization. So how much of a threat is climate change to globalization and thus capitalism? And can capitalism survive global warming? More importantly, can we survive capitalism? Here to give us an eyewitness account of what may very well be our future, Aaron Van Singen wrote the Uneven Earth article, Faith in a Frail World, a Journey Through British Columbia, this November showed how fragile the economy really is. Welcome to This Is Hell, Aaron. Aaron, are you there? Hi. Oh. Yes, I'm there. All right. Hey, you are there, and I'm here. Yes. Uh, Aaron <laughs> is an editor of Uneven, Uneven Earth and writes about cities, foods, food, ecology, and science fiction. You can find out more about Uneven Earth at unevenearth.org, and you can follow Aaron on Twitter at Aaron underscore V-A-N-S-I. He is co-author of the upcoming book, The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism, which will be published by our good friends over at Verso Books. So you start by writing in 1991, economist William Nordhaus argued that 87% of GDP would not be affected by climate change. Why, you ask? Most of the economy runs on things like manufacturing, finance, and services, all things that can be done indoors, safe from the weather. Nordhaus won the Nobel Memorial Prize in economics for this work. This line of argumentation is quite common today. This year alone, three papers published in top economics journals argued that climate change would only reduce global GDP by four to seven percent. And you said you had this research on your mind as your plane lifted off from Vancouver International Airport on Monday, November 22nd, in midst of the flooding and mudslides that were taking place in British Columbia. And you point out for almost a week, the greater area of Vancouver population, almost two and a half million, had been separated from the rest of Canada because flooding and mudslides had ripped away key highways and railroads. 15,000 people were evacuated from their homes. Four people and 700,000 farm animals died. There were up to $6 billion U.S. dollars in damages and a decline of 1.5% of GDP growth is expected. So what does that reveal to you, that decrease in GDP growth? What does that reveal to you about this idea being endorsed by peer-reviewed economics journals that overall climate change will only reduce GDP by 4 to 7%? Right. So um, a lot of the assumptions in these papers, uh, in this research, kind of um, approach the economy in a very simple way. They, um, they calculate where money is being made and not necessarily the connections between how that money is being made. Um, and that's pretty classical in the way that GDP is just measures uh, certain kinds of 
um, economic activity and most economic activity um, kind of is ignored. Um, and it's, it's just kind of, uh, I was, for some reason I had William Nordhaus on my mind as we were lifting off, looking down at this flooded landscape. Um, and we were taking an airplane because we couldn't drive. Um, we couldn't leave Vancouver. Um, we had to book a flight to get to, um, my partner's brother in Revelstoke, which is in the mountains. So, um, yeah, it's just, it just really highlighted the, the abstract, uh, the abstractness of, of how a lot of mainstream economists approach the economy and, and the total delusion that that uh, requires. Why do you think economists disconnect the where of uh, where money is being made from the why or how money is being made? Why do you think they have that disconnect? Uh, that's a really good question. I think to be able to do um, a certain kind of economics, um, you have to be able to disconnect it. It, it just, for example, um, you know, housework. Usually, unless someone's getting paid to do the housework, housework doesn't appear in the GDP ledger book. Um, most kinds of environmental goods don't appear in that. Um, but also, just kind of the the way the field of economics approaches things, um, it's very disconnected. If money's being made on Wall Street, that shows up, but it doesn't show the rainforests that are being cut down to make palm oil, to make that money. It's, it's just, um, to be that kind of economist, you have to have a very, uh, disconnected view of the world. So do you think this is delusional or do you think this is more driven by denialism of maybe, uh, climate change or the impact that climate change will have on capitalism? That's a good question. I think, um, it's ideology, ideology, ideological, um, the, it, I, there's a certain kind of economists, uh, William Nordhaus is one of them who are interested in, um, claiming that even though climate change is occurring, there is, uh, no reason to fear about it occurring. Um, because if there were reason to fear, we would have to change a lot of things. Um, so the, you see this line a lot in, it's not necessarily conservatives. Um, it's, it's more like centrists and, um, yeah, liberals, um, who actually say, well, no, everything is fine we just need to keep doing what we're doing. We just need to make things a bit more efficient. Um, and we need to maybe do a few little things. Um, but actually the ship is running and it's going really well. This is the faith that the market can fix everything. And yet 
you write, uh, while this flooding and all these mudslides were happening back in November in British Columbia, you write, the city of Vancouver seemed to be operating as normal the week we were there. Up above, cranes swung wildly, glassy condo towers were being built in fast-forward setting, unaffected by the deluge. Directed by the invisible strings of speculation and investment, developers kept building their vertical mirrors. Stores uh, stores and billboards advertised wellness and cosmopolitan lifestyles, hummers and tropical getaways. The city was buzzing along as if there was no flood. Now, this sounds like whistling by the graveyard to me. That is the willful ignoring of an upcoming and imminent disaster. What does this say to you about the market when it responds the way to this way to climate change? and environmental catastrophes, that it seems to just keep trudging on as if there is nothing happening, even a few short miles away. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, it just, it, I think we're in a situation where the market is doing so well, and there's just, we're really in a situation where there is a glut of capital of, of just to a level that, I don't even comprehend. Um, there's just so much money <laughs> and, and so much that can be done with all that money. And it's just going to keep going um, and keep building and keep investing. And uh, that really, when while I was in Vancouver, that really shocked me was how, how that, how that, just keeps keeps chugging along and um and and how it doesn't care <laughs> um because it doesn't really matter um you know we've heard that i think in in some cases construction uh is the prices of construction materials are like 300 percent um more expensive than they used to be 800 percent um to the extent that I can't even buy a few uh, wood panels to to make something at home anymore, so it's just uh, there's just so much money out there that they've the industry, real estate industry has absorbed all of that and is actually still growing uh, very well, is doing very well. And you point out that meanwhile, on the sidewalks and in the alleys of Vancouver, in the parks and in dark corners, a daily calamity of misery reigned amongst the homeless. Vancouver, often ranked as one of the best cities to live in in the world, also has more homeless people per capita than Toronto or Montreal. Do you see ongoing construction in Vancouver as if there is no flooding forcing thousands to evacuate their homes only a short distance away? Do you see something similar in that market reaction to the perception that despite Vancouver having more homeless people per capita than uh, or Toronto or Montreal, that, well, it, that, is there a connection between ignoring climate change and turning a blind eye to uh, poverty uh, related to climate change? And if so, how, is there, how, how are those two things connected? How are climate change and, uh, ignoring climate change and turning a blind eye to poverty related? That's a really good question, Chuck. And I, that's gets at something that I kind of wanted to get at in the article and, and that I've been feeling is that I think there's a way of thinking where you can see, 
you can't see some of the relationships between how things work um, and a way of acting um, that you can't see that. And, and usually that is because capital, because money is involved. Um, because money doesn't really care your speculation, your investment doesn't really care whether people are living on the streets as long as you're able to invest in real estate, um, as long as you know the market is doing really well. Um, similarly, uh, capital doesn't care if climate change is happening as long as um, in the short term things uh, things are 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 just are, are enormously profitable, <laughs> which they are right now. Um, and part of it, I think, is 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 um, we we've ended up in an economic system, at, at least in in a lot of the Western countries, where. Um, personal welfare is attached to what kind of assets you have. Like if you have a real estate or if you have some kind of investment, some kind of stocks. And um, if you don't have that, anything happens and, and you're on the street and we're just seeing a crazy rise in homelessness right now. Um, and going to Vancouver in Montreal, there isn't actually that much homelessness um, or as much, but going there, it was really just, um, it was, it was really incredible to see the kind of, um, yeah, the, the shocking inequality between all this money of being available and, and, and really the, the very sad, um, and very desperate situation that a lot of people are in who, who don't have the ability to play that game. Um, yeah. And you write that Vancouver's soggy, wretched underclass seemed to be living in the real city on which the city of mirrors was superimposed. Why do you see the underclass as representative of the real city? and not the mirrors of wealth and power. Yeah, I, I think that speaks to the, this exact thing where you, people are, people, we're living in a double world where a certain part of the world can operate as if everything is going extremely well, and that's a minority. And then a really big part of the world is doing very badly um, and, and has very little power um, and that, I think that's the world that we're in more and more heading towards where with climate change, that, that world of mirrors of, of, of high risers of, of speculation is just going to keep going while more and more people are going to, um, end up in really dire conditions. And you point out that one night going back to your friend's place, we passed by a railroad blockade set up by allies of the Wet'suwet'en. Members of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation are blocking access to the construction of the coastal gas link natural gas pipeline on their territory. And we're being jailed by the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, 
just as we were eating dinner. We stopped and chatted with the activists there, asking them why they were doing what they were doing. The answer was solidarity. It was almost as if in Vancouver there were two cities, one visible to the workings of investment and finance, that 87% that seemingly does not get affected by the deluge. The second city was one where catastrophe had already happened. Through decades of a disinvestment in public housing and health care, centuries of land theft, and indigenous genocide. So what do you think happens when equality leads to people unequally experiencing climate change? How do you think the response to climate change may be affected by the rich being relatively safe physically and financially from the effects of global warming, while the poor are not? Well, I think if if you look at people how people in Canada at least are responding, but also in in the United States uh, to climate change. Um, There was a recent study that showed that actually most um, cuts in carbon emissions were due to indigenous organizing. So for example, the blockading of the Dakota Access Pipeline, or um, in the case of Canada, the blockading of of the... the, there's the struggle around Kinder Morgan. Um, then there's also this this blockading of, of the pipeline that the Wet'suwet'en are doing right now. Um, we're we're heading to a world where um, there's just in, incredible insecurity. Um, but the people who have already experienced that world, um, who are already living in it. Are, are some of the most um, courageous in in stepping up and and showing us what what's going on and also what's um, what needs to be done about it. And so the blockade um, of the pipeline in in Wet'suwet'en territory but also the allies of the Wet'suwet'en, which included a lot of indigenous folks, setting up a blockade on a railway, it, it's, it's almost as if they were doing a similar action that climate change is doing, which is blocking certain supplies, certain lines of, of, of the supply chain and showing this is what's going on. This is what's happening. These are the flows that the the world of finance and capital are are relying on and and showing when these are blocked things get really bad um and we have to pay attention um yeah and that's it, it, that's really interesting this idea of disrupting supply chains as effective activism why do you think that indigenous activism is having more of an effect on uh, the fight against climate change, the fight against uh, fossil fuels, than non-indigenous activism is. Why does it? Why is the? Why are the indigenous, in your opinion, leading that cause right now? Well, I think it, it speaks. Uh, that's for me. Um, it speaks to having experienced generations of of colonialism um and also generations of of developing forms of resistance to colonialism um and 
developing uh, understanding of these kinds of relationships that we are that capitalism ignores. Um, and I, I think a lot of indigenous folks and indigenous communities and activists, and at least the ones I've talked to, just kind of see things very clearly and see those relationships in a way that a lot of people don't because they're the ones who have been affected by it. Um, you know, for a lot of these folks, their communities have been destroyed a, a long time ago, but they're still able to build community. They're still able to resist. Um, and also they're in a very particular um, relationship to the land where they can, where they know that their freedom is tied to the freedom of the land. Um, and I, I think that really means that we have to pay attention to that. What do we miss in our understanding of climate change when we do not see its connections to colonialism and settler colonialism? Yeah, I think um, it's, it's just so clear that climate change isn't caused by humans in general. It's, it's, it's caused by a certain kind of market logic, a, a market which um, values assets and values the production of money. And that market has only existed because of historical relationships with colonized countries, because of the extraction that it depended on from colonized uh, regions and peoples, um, because of slavery and because of um, continuing uh, neocolonialism, like through land grabs and and through um, uh, debt-based relationships with, with um, impoverished countries that, who just own massive debts. And in, in the case of in, indigenous people in, in, in North America, um, it's, it's a lot of these communities who happen to live either on um, sites where there's massive amounts of toxic waste because that's, uh, because they're not seen as as um, as uh, important enough to to protect from uh, the toxicity of industrialization, or they're, um, they they live on sites where there's massive amounts of of minerals, oil, or um, extractive uh, resources that that capitalism relies on. So we have this kind of ongoing colonialism right now and, and the connections between climate change and, and that process is means that I think uh, indigenous people are at the forefront of the struggle against climate change. We are speaking with Aaron Van Singen. He wrote the Uneven Earth article, Faith in a Frail World. A journey through British Columbia this November showed how fragile the economy really is. You can follow Aaron on Twitter at A underscore Vansi. That's V-A-N-S-I. You also write about visiting 
BC when, with your partner saying that little did we know that we would be traveling during a once in every 500 years flood. After spending time in Victoria and Vancouver, we were meant to visit friends in Osoyoos to the south. That trip was canceled when it just became too complicated with no bus routes available. The next step was to Revelstoke, a mountain town deep in the Rockies. The only way to get there with the current road conditions was in the air. On landing in Kamloops, a small industrial city, our pilot chatted with a worker at the airport. The woman reported she couldn't get milk anymore. Later in town, we talked to our waiter. Gasoline was being restored, uh, natural, or uh, sorry, rationed. Natural gas prices jumped by 40%. So bus routes unavailable, road conditions making it so the only way to get to a certain place was now by air. Inaccessibility goods like milk, gas being rationed, natural gas prices jumping. How long do you think the wealth in cities like Vancouver will be insulated from these effects of climate change, or are they already being affected by these effects of climate change? I think we're, we're seeing more and more that we're being affected um, already. Um, the, what, what's kind of struck me in this whole experience was what people seem to be experiencing for the first time, and what I certainly hadn't experienced much myself was kind of rationing and uh, unavailability of, of goods, of certain supplies that is extremely common in a lot of countries around the world and a lot of um, communities that just are outside of this, um, this uh, network of, of supply, of the supply chain that, that just, don't have the power to to access this steady stream of of goods. So, but suddenly um, we are seeing uh, these kinds of shocks happening in in the West, in in some of the richest cities in the West. Um, this uh, unavailability of of certain things that people assumed would always be there. And yeah, that really struck me was all of a sudden, all of a sudden things fall down and, and things um, become difficult. And uh, we're seeing that more around um, the pandemic as well. But I, I, I cited in the article, um, this one labor historian, Kim Moody, who, who wrote about, um, about the supply chain crisis that we're facing now and, and how this is a system that just stretched so thin because everything has, to ha is, has been restructured to happen so fast. And, and what, what we're seeing is, is just little things that happen like a flood or like a snowstorm, as you mentioned in the beginning of this show, just little things just bring everything to a grinding halt. And that also includes right now with the pandemic, if, if workers are sick or if um, certain kinds of supplies like masks or vaccines or uh, vaccine tests or, or um, COVID tests, if, if they're just used to, if they're, they just become not available all of a sudden, and I think a lot of us are are experiencing that right now. 
You quote labor researcher Kim Moody, a past guest on our show, explaining, quote, a single glitch in the production or movement of goods due to a shortage of labor or space can disrupt the supply chains crisscrossing the world. So what does that seeming frailty reveal to you about the current state of capitalism? Is capitalism always frail or is it only in this globalized neoliberal form? I I think for sure we are getting more and more frail. Um, We're seeing these lots of little shocks um, happening that are like the system is, is, is strained and, and ready to buckle. Um, And I, I think I'm certainly feeling that. And I think a lot of people are feeling that. And I also want to speak to that where, you know, I mentioned that, I think indigenous people are, are really um, have been leaders in the cl- movement against climate change. But now, as our attention is turning towards the supply chain crisis that we're facing, it's it's also truck drivers and and uh, dock workers and um, people on contain in the container shipping industry, who who are. Um, who have been revealed to many people as being a crucial node in our system and in, in making our system work. So we're once again seeing, um, as, as we saw in, in, you know, the golden era of, of labor, um, you know, with, with coal mine strikes, with, um, blockades of ports in, in the 1900, early 1900s, we're once again seeing labor, becoming uh, a potential force in in uh, in the system but at the same time also bearing the brunt of of the huge problems that neoliberalism has has created which is just stretching everyone to their limits I uh, turned on Fox News yesterday just for a moment, and I saw them talking about the Great Resignation, and their sub-headline for the Great Resignation was, Are Workers Getting Too Much Power? Which I found very entertaining. (laughs) So you also quote Kim Moody again saying, Speed in the supply chain brings greater risks, floods, power outages, computer glitches, roads in disrepair, labor disputes, or as we have now seen, pandemics and trade problems can bring a just-in-time system of logistics to a halt because there is no slack in the system. Do you believe that the supply chain needs to abandon just-in-time logistics? What happens when the global economy is forced to slow down permanently? Will that have not only an effect on Wall Street, but then that effect trickles down to us as, you know, not the people who are well off? Do you think that, uh, you know, what happens when the global uh, economy is forced to slow down permanently? I think in the economy that we've built, um, it 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 will create a lot of uh, a big shock and and crisis um, for a lot of people. Um, I, I'm I'm not an expert in in logistics, um, but it's clear to me that we're we're heading for. Um, big hardships and there's going to have to be a reckoning of, of whether if, if we have built a system that 
can't be maintained on the mere, the smallest little shock, um, the smallest little bottleneck. Um, we have to build a different system that is, is just, that offers just employment to its workers, but also that um, doesn't depend on, on everyone getting everything not everyone, certain people getting everything at the same, at all the time. <laughs> um, and I, I think we're going to see a big change in, in how those things work. So can capitalism survive that end, that potential end of globalization? Can capitalism, can the market survive the end of globalization? I think so. Yeah. Um, we published an article on Uneven Earth a while ago called Catabolic Capitalism um, it, it, by, uh, let me just get the, Craig Collins. And um, I think, you know, it's up to us <laughs> um, if capitalism survives or not. Um, I would prefer it not surviving. <laughs> but um it's possible that it's very possible that capitalism would just become uh, a system where you continue having this global divide of, of some, the few who have a lot, um, who are able to, you know, order everything from Amazon uh, when they want to. And then most people who have very little and who are not protected from catastrophe. And, um, I think capitalism could easily turn into something that rather than depending on, on um, this kind of logistic system, buttressing it, it, it would depend on uh, a system that kind of eats itself. Um, so this article, it, it talked about uh, catabolism, which is this biological process where an organ, an, an organism or a cell eats itself to uh, eats its own nutrients to survive. And that could go on for hundreds, hundreds of years. Um, yeah, I, I think it, it's um, possibility and, and, you know, we, we have the choice of, of whether we want a system like that or not. So is climate change itself, not the activism around climate change, but the actual process of climate change, uh, to what degree is that a threat to the extractive industries and their ability to get to and extract and transport resources? Resources, when burned, contribute to global warming. Is is climate change going to make it so the extractive industries that cause climate change won't be as able to extract? I think that's a good question and one that I don't feel like I'm able to answer or maybe anyone is able to answer like I don't really know how how resilient the system is um, and how able the system is to keep going. What we are going to see, I think, is is a lot of um, we're already in a phase where there's just so much capital out there that cap that investors are are looking everywhere for sites of investment um, and look for safe places to park their money and increasingly the extractive industry isn't um, considered a very safe place but still real estate is very safe um, 
smaller investors look at things like Bitcoin and NFTs or all that stuff. Um, but I, I do think that with this enormous glut of capital, we still will have a system that is willing to take huge risks to invest in things, um, even though it might mean a lot of destruction of, of capital. Um, and you point out that the connections between industry, climate change, and disaster, they don't stop there. Industrial agriculture, which relies on chemical fertilizer and large machinery rather than maintenance of soil quality, leads to soil erosion and, by extension, more flooding. So the processes we go through to heat our homes, to provide power to our homes, to feed ourselves, to house ourselves, and the resources we need for technology, are they all environmental threats? If the way we live is destroying the planet we depend upon, do we need to change everything? And will anything short of that lead to disaster? Um, yes, <laughs> I think we, we do need to change everything. Um, but I don't think I, I think it's important not to fall in the trap of everything is bad um, because it's it's very possible for us to live in ways that are actually um, beneficial to our environment. Um, and many peoples around the world have done that for for millennia. Um, but what what I think we need to think about is is how how are the what are the relationships between different kinds of economic activity what's the relationship between a lumber industry um that is inherently ex extractive meaning that it, it it only takes um and it doesn't actually transform a system for the better um but it's also degrading what does it mean for relying on that lumber industry and what are the connections between that kind of lumber industry with the flooding that we we just saw? And the same happened in, in Germany and, and in uh, the Netherlands and Belgium this summer, where you actually had this um, whole area that faced extreme flooding in large part due to certain kinds of urbanization and certain kinds of industry that have been uh, allowed to accelerate and allowed to accelerate their kind of, um, to, to squeeze as, as much profits out of the land as possible. And that has meant stripping of soil, stripping of um, the ability of, of, of the earth to hold water. So I guess what I'm saying is rather than, we have to work towards a system where we, the relationship between different activities is not is is a relationship that makes sense that is is rational and that is ecological um what we have now is a system that makes no sense because um one industry means uh, causes uh, a lot of degradation and eventual calamity down the line. Um, yeah. Why aren't those connections visible to us? Because like you were talking about the logging industry, the logging industry insists that cutting down uh, trees stops catastrophic forest fires. However, an Oregon public broadcasting investigation in October of 2020 
found that was not the case. The report found, in fact, private lands that were clear-cut in the past five years with thousands of trees removed at once burned slightly hotter than federal lands on average. On public lands, areas that were logged within the past five years burned with the same intensity as those that hadn't been cut, according to the analysis. And that story also quotes a Jack Cohen, a retired U.S. Forest Service scientist who pioneered research on how homes catch fire. Cohen said, the belief people have is that somehow or another we can thin our way to low-intensity fire that will be easy to suppress, easy to contain, easy to control. Nothing could be farther from the truth. What does it say to you about uh, the fossil fuels and extractive industries when they're under scrutiny due to climate change, yet they're proposing projects that would lead to even more environmental destruction? What does that reveal to you about the extractive industries? Yeah, well, you know, to me, it's um, someone, I don't remember who said um, that while well, physicists were the scientists of the 20th century, ecologists will be the scientists of the 21st century um, in the sense that uh, it, industry is allowed to operate without considering or actively hiding and, and uh, censoring in many cases and, and just blinding us to the relationships that exist in the world all around us. And then ecology is about understanding those relationships. And, and also it, often indigenous traditional knowledge is also about understanding the relationships between uh, certain kinds of management of the land and uh, human habitation. And I think what we're seeing more and more is in order to operate, in order to continue extracting the maximum kind of profit, um, we're going to see more and more obfuscation of those relationships. And that's the thing with climate change is, you know, we, we think of it as this big thing about global heating, but uh, we're, we're actually facing a, a death of a thousand cuts um, where there's all this kind of ecological degradation happening in the local sphere that's exacerbating all of uh, that's exacerbated and then all of a sudden reaches a, a, a crisis or a tipping point when uh, when conditions are just a bit hotter. So flooding is one example. Wildfires are another example. And in the case of British Columbia, um, people we were there were still traumatized by the wildfires that they had experienced. They they had um, they were completely shocked and 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 harmed and and having still nightmares about just the incredible heat and the living in a in a orange fog for the whole summer. Um, and that is connected to the logging industry, as, as you pointed out, and, and also the flooding is also connected. Um, so all, all these things are connected and it's in the interests of the people who make money off of all these things to not see or reveal the connections. So what do you think that traumatization's impact will be on 
our response to climate change? Will it be continued denialism or an effective and calculated response, maybe, or somewhere in between? How does traumatization, how, how does that traumatization, in your opinion, affect our response to climate change? That's a really difficult question. I don't think it makes sense to say that the more this is going to happen, the more people are going to wake up because that's not necessarily the case. I think it depends on um, if we have people in public and in local communities who are making the connections clear, who are pointing to the connections, who aren't afraid to point to the connections. And what you're seeing, what I see a lot is, you know, people we talk to in our trip, they just felt so distanced from their politicians because none of the politicians were willing to draw these connections. You know, people see the connections right in front of them. Even, you know, you, you live in a rural community, you have the choice between either, either working in tourism, mining, or logging. If you want to stay in that community, but you can also see the connections between the logging and the, the wildfires and the flooding. So you, people are very well aware of these connections and there's a total disconnect between what, what they're experiencing and what people are, are saying on TV and what people are saying, um, what politicians are saying. So I, I think there's a huge opportunity there for articulating those connections. And, and uh, I, I think it's about time that we do. You write that it is up to those of us who can see the fragility of the world and cannot abide by it to put a stop to the calamity awaiting us. <laughs> to do so, we need to cut ourselves loose from the net while tending to our broken relationships and forging new ones. How can we, as you say it, cut, loose, cut ourselves loose from the net while tending to our broken relationships and forging new ones, how can we cut ourselves loose from that net? That's a really difficult question. Um, I think it's going to take a lot of different kinds of effort. Um, in individually, I think uh, it's important to find people who who can see those kinds of relationship and uh, in your neighborhood or in your town and to work with them and to actively um, support and find people who are doing the same. Um, on, on a political level, not to say that that kind of uh, local collective action is, is, is not political, it's extremely political. I, I think on a, uh, on a, level of you know national politics or even municipal politics pu pu pushing for um policies that that um make another world possible that that make it possible to extract ourselves from this net which i i was using as a metaphor for this world of speculation of finance of investment which kind of guides everything right now and i think simply sim very simply is is taking taking things out of the market just saying no no housing in the market no 
uh, natural resources in the market. Food is is not is a right. Like it is not something that should be speculated on. Um, to me, that's kind of, um, and then also just uh, supporting people who uh, supporting research, supporting uh, institutes that are drawing the connections between these global issues. One last question for you, Aaron. We've been speaking with Aaron Van Singen, who wrote the Uneven Earth article, Faith in a Frail World, a Journey Through British Columbia. This November showed how fragile the economy really is. Aaron is co-author of the upcoming Verso book, The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism. You can follow Aaron on Twitter at A underscore Vansi. That's V-A-N-S-I. One last question for you, Aaron. As we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question for from hell, the question that we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. That's what we call the question from hell. So on local TV news here in Chicago on Monday, the first day of a return to mask mandates, as well as the additional proof of vaccination that is now needed to enter bars and restaurants in the city. And on that broadcast, they interviewed a customer who was sitting in a restaurant diner booth. When they were asked what they thought of adapting to the new requirements, they pulled down their mask and said, this is normal from now on. This is how it's going to be forever. Do you believe the way that we are existing today is how it's going to be moving forward? Or do you think it will improve for the better or you or deteriorate even further? <laughs> that is a question from hell. Uh, I believe it. we're going to see a lot of things we've never seen before. <laughs> and that might be some inspiring things um, and a lot of really shocking things um, that, that um, I think the new normal will be abnormal in short. <laughs> All we have to do is prepare for the unexpected. That sounds great, yes. <laughs> Aaron. On that note, thank you very much, Aaron, for being on our show this week. I really appreciate it, and people should check out Uneven Earth and follow Aaron on Twitter at A underscore Vansi. That's V-A-N-S-I. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you, Chuck. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. This week's question from hell is what would make your life 1% better. What would make your life 1% better? better? The uh, person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell on our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it at us. But we must have your answer, well, right around now because at the end of this show we will be announcing this week's winner following jeff dorchin and the moment of truth during this week's moment jeff's forbidden words for this year are all numbers alex do you have more answers to this week's question from hell uh yeah hold on let me admit jeff to the waiting room hello waiting room okay there we go all right uh yes so what would make your life one percent better one percent better P oh sorry uh here we go Stuck on a PV saying my yeah. damn mom. <laughs> okay. David S. says, if only my ivory soap could be 144 one hundredths percent pure. <laughs> All right. Kim G. says, improved posture. I don't trust ivory soap because it floats. I have an issue with that. <laughs> posture is good, though. Chris B. says, a kiss on the lips. <laughs> I'm liking the subtly horny people that are showing up in this. <laughs> I'm liking this trend for 2022. Uh, Brayden S. says, 
no thanks i'll take the one percent worse uh and via oh we got a couple via dm twitter etc Ivar says, if the 1% were taxed to the point where they merged with the 5% and the 5% were taxed to merge with the 10%, etc., etc., etc. Vess says, 1% of the undeserved, uh, unearned self-confidence and self-assuredness of every business executive I have ever worked for. And finally, Historic Dog Walks, I'd like to learn more about that name, says, 30 bucks. <laughs> 30 bucks is a really good answer. Is that Historic Dog Walks? Historic Dog Walks. <laughs> I like the two for two on that one. Yeah, exactly. Thirty bucks is pretty good. All right, I want to know about those historic dog walks. Do they appreciate the architecture they see? I'm very curious about the whole operation. We'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from Hell, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. But you have to get your responses in now. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is Hell, and if you want to help us climb out of that debt, of course you can go to thisishell.com, click on support, and see all of our merchandise and do that or you can become a subscriber to our patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell become a subscriber to this is hell on patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly patreon podcast which streams live now every thursday that's right the patreon podcast has moved to thursdays and this podcast shortly after it the same place patreon.com Slash This Is Hell. So if you are listening to the world broadcast premiere of This Is Hell on WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago's Sound Experiment on Saturday morning, that podcast, that Patreon podcast is already up. And on this week's Patreon podcast, again, which now happens on Thursday, live at 10 a.m. Chicago time, and this podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash This Is Hell, I will be giving my uh, shoddy predictions for 2022, predictions very much influenced by conversations with our guests this week and throughout last year they're not necessarily good predictions in fact i'm hoping most of them will be wrong others may be far too optimistic likely the vast majority will be proven to be inaccurate in the very near future nonetheless they are my predictions and i stand behind them like way far behind them so i am not held responsible for their inaccuracy also on Patreon, following our conversation this week with Nicholas Mulder, author of The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War, Alex suggested that we share interviews we did with the co-coordinator of the now-defunct Voices of the Wilderness, three-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee Kathy Kelly. During U.S. sanctions against Iraq in the 1990s and up until the invasion and occupation in 2003, Kathy and her organization had openly violated those sanctions by bringing much-needed medical aid to the people of Iraq, as well as toys and musical instruments for the children who were suffering the most from sanctions, and then notifying the State Department that they were violating sanctions. In fact, we did five interviews prior to 9-11 with Kathy about her just fight against deadly sanctions, which killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqis. But we will never know how many actually died from the U.S. cutting off the Iraqi people from the global economy. Which means this week on Patreon, it's my likely horrible predictions for 2022 and a conversation or two or three from the 20th century with Kathy Kelly on the warfare of economic sanctions. But if you want to hear any and all of that, subscribe to our weekly Patreon podcast. Streams live now every Thursday and is podcast shortly after at the same place. Patreon.com slash this is hell live from hangover country. This is hell. And I know you have Hefe on the line.
happy year. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. They say there's strength in numbers. They say there's safety in numbers. Well, I don't think so. I think numbers are just a way to try to support the mirage, try to give substance to their illusions. Numbers are a false structure over which they build the compartments they want to put you in. I am not a number. I am a human being. Even human is more specific than I want to get. I am a being. I exist, unlike numbers. They say do the math, as if doing the math will solve the problem. It might solve the math problem, but not every problem is a math problem. Not every problem can be boiled down to a math problem. If you're playing blackjack, math can help. And unfortunately, our world has become dominated by glorified card counters. They say it's a new year. They did Give it a new number. There's that. Never mind that the Chinese and the Jews and various other peoples passed that number a few millennia ago. On the eve, as they call it, the clock ticked closer to midnight, as it does every night, no matter where in the year we are, so nothing special there. Then the clock struck midnight. Again, nothing special, except for purely arbitrary reasons. This midnight was the last in the numbered sequence of midnights, or the first in a new numbered sequence, whatever. It's artificial new year. Happy artificial new year. Look, there's no conspiracy. They're not lying to you. They just don't know any better. They're fooled by the numbers, too. No one believes in the numbers more than they do. They really think this is a new year, a real new year. Look, they say, the earth went all the way around the sun. How do you know? We might well ask. Is there a mark in space where we started? No. Theoretically, if there was a mark in space where we started circling the sun, it wouldn't be anywhere near the point where we're at now. Because while we're going around the sun, theoretically, the sun is cruising through space, too. The whole galaxy is turning, theoretically. This is the point I start to wonder about the flat earth people. What do they think is going on? I don't really care. Certainly not enough to ask one of them. But there are still flat earth believers, just like there were last week when supposedly it was a different year. It's the same year. They're out of ideas. They're not even trying. The Greenland ice sheet is still melting. The temperature of the ocean is still rising. We still have COVID-19. That number hasn't changed. If there have been two New Year's's since this thing started, how come we're still in the 2019 version of COVID? I'm not saying there's no hope. There's no progress toward a, I don't know, whatever people hope there'll be progress toward. Progress toward stopping the war on poor people. Progress toward preventing forest fires. Progress toward toppling the fossil fuel giants without them falling on us and crushing us under their still struggling bodies. Progress toward the far distant past when no one cared if you got an abortion or not because it was nobody's business but your own. Progress toward the past, I hear you ask. Isn't that by definition impossible? Wouldn't that be regression? Oh, people, people, you're so last year, which is this year. Since we aren't moving forward in the years, does it even matter which way our progress goes? I know people who worked their titties off to make abortion legal. That was, of course, under the old regime, where the past was oppressive and progress went forward toward the better future. But in a condition of stasis, you have two choices about progress. Either it moves toward the future in the direction of the arrow of time, or it moves toward the better in the direction of our heart's hopes. 
You could have both if this really was a new year and time really did move forward, but it doesn't. You can't progress into a future toward which time is not moving. You can't progress in a direction in which nothing is moving. You can progress toward better things, though. Things will always be either better or worse to any given person. You can progress in quality, not chronometry. In fact, my statement about progressing toward the past vis-a-vis -vis abortion was facetious and misleading. Just because something in the past was better doesn't mean progress in that regard moves backwards into the past. It may seem like we'll have to win back the gains we thought we'd made, and we will, but not by going backwards toward them. Not by going forwards to them either. We are in stasis. We are going nowhere. The year is the same. It's all one big shitty year. We thought we had the Voting Rights Act. But it was taken away. We can't go backwards to it, though, back to the good outcome we thought we had but didn't. Clearly, that past good outcome wasn't nailed down. Next time we get to the outcome, we need to nail it down good and solid. Next time we get some workers' power, like when millions of people were in unions, instead of exchange that power for cash or for employer-provided health insurance, let's force the government to do its job and provide its citizens with the necessities to which they have a right. What do I mean by the phrase next time? If time stands still, how can there be a next? We are definitely in the same year. The disease is the same. The attitudes are the same. The president's the same. The lack of power is the same. The problems remain. But as I said before, just because time doesn't move forward, which means progress isn't in the future, let's not make the mistake of thinking that good things are not possible. Whatever direction the good things are located, that's the direction to go. Go toward the quality, not the chronometry. Go toward what you want what you know is best for the world, whether it's above, below, behind, ahead, to the left, to the right. Obviously, the bulk of it will not be to the right. But don't get lazy. Don't go with the flow. Don't hop on the bandwagon. Use your best instincts. Be ruthless with yourself as far as information. Don't let yourself off the hook. If it seems true, make sure to the best of your ability that it is. And don't rely on the numbers to tell you what's going on. Numbers have failed us. The people who are savants at statistics are using them to steal the world. That's all Elon Musk is, a numbers man. He didn't invent anything. He knew, just like a, about everyone, that electricity was going to replace gasoline, so he ran the numbers and decided to put his money on electric cars. He didn't invent them. He has exactly one patent. And that's for the shape of the receptacle in your car. You put the plug in to fill it with electricity, which these days is basically Joe Manchin brand coal juice. And the only reason he designed it the way he did was because he knew it would force other electricity chargers to adopt his design. It was a numbers move. Mr. Musk, I got your number. I got your number right here. Your number's up. Happy year. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. So, Jeffy, our first guest this year, the first guest on this week's show was Peter James Hudson, who talked with us about his Boston Review article, Frederick Douglass and American Empire in Haiti. During that conversation, I mentioned how Peter quotes Frederick Douglass commenting on a U.S. plan oh. to force Haitians to pay claims the U.S. made of dubious Haitian debts to the United States incurred during Haiti's successful fight for independence. Peter quotes Douglas saying, the proposition shocked me. It sounded like the words of Satan on the mountain, and I thought it 
time to call a halt. I time to call a halt. I said that it was in reference to a passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. when Satan tempts Jesus, <laughs> saying, "All these things I will give you if you fall down." and do an act of worship to me. Since then, you've corrected me on social media. Tell me, Jeff, why <laughs> is that statement of a uh, story about Jesus in Deuteronomy obviously <laughs> incorrect? Uh, Jesus ain't in De Deuteronomy. That, that's what makes Deuteronomy part of the Old Testament. I see. See, they didn't, they didn't come up with the New Testament until this guy Jesus showed up. So Jesus wasn't, there were no cameos by Jesus in Deuteronomy or Old Testament. No, but what's interesting is there are cameos in the Babylonian Talmud. Oh, really? Yeah, there's a rabbi who was flying around as rabbis tended to do. And he saw Jesus flying below him. He said, oh, that guy says he's the, he's the Messiah. Uh, uh, let's test him. And he peed on Jesus and Jesus crash landed. And that's how the rabbi knew he wasn't the Messiah. <laughs> wow. I don't know if that's true. Anything that you just told me is true or not. If it's from the <laughs> It <onion>. is true. <laughs> it is true. It's not from the onion. Um, by the way, Ridley Walker is a great book. Right, I'm, let's get back to Deuteronomy just for a moment before we get to Ridley Walker. <laughs> so Deuteronomy abides. You're right. It's Sarah Strawberry. It's from yes. old. It's from Old Testament. It's from. Uh, it's it's not from the Old Testament. I should say it's not from Deuteronomy. You're right. But it's from Matthew in the New Testament where it says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And here's why I got it wrong, Jeffy, and this is what you need oh. to explain to me. It's apparently uh. in reference to something from Deuteronomy, which is actually re repeated. They actually have this in there twice for some reason. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. So, Jeff, as someone who is clearly more of a biblical scholar than I am, <laughs> after all, you are Jewish and actually had to read this stuff while I was raised a Roman Catholic, and the Pope <laughs> just tells us what's in the Bible so we don't have to go through the agonizing pain of actually reading, which I can only assume is a poorly written and translated book that is incredibly boring. If Matthew's stealing lines <laughs> from Deuteronomy, is the New Testament more like a sequel with a new character thrown in like Jar Jar Binks, or is it more of a spin-off like <laughs> Young Sheldon? <laughs> Those are the choices. Yes. Um, uh, I would say it thinks of itself as a sequel. I don't think it's a very good sequel, to be honest with you. But, um, you know, they say things oh, like, look, Isaiah over here said this. That must mean Jesus. Look over here, he says this. That's probably about Jesus. Look over here, Moses said, you know, I'm looking out on all these uh, stuff over from the mountain. That, that must mean Jesus somehow. I don't know. Uh, it's more like a wish fulfillment thing to my mind I, nothing against you christians hey you got your story our story's totally made up it's just older and better <laughs> all right that that <laughs> i will buy so it is french connection one compared to fresh french connection two it's a little bit like it's a little bit like the marvel universe uh except that uh in the in the sequel, in the New Testament, there's really only one main character, which God, gets really boring. I don't understand how people do this, praying to like those one guy and setting all your hopes on this one guy. Hey, that's how it works. That's all what neoliberalism Just is this all about. this one guy. All anyway, right, Jeffy. Ridley Walker. <laughs> Jeffy, until yes. next week. What? Stay beautiful. 
Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell, and do we have any more responses? Oh, yeah, we do. This week's question from... Where's my damn music? (laughs) Your damn music. Okay, uh, yes. So, what would make your life 1% better? What would make your life 1% better? Via Twitter. Uh, One sec. There we go. Okay, sorry about that. I had to... Refresh. Frost11B says, those subvertising stickers that got lost in the mail a year and a half ago. <laughs> I, uh, I will be in touch with you to make sure you have the same address. Uh, all I'm doing today uh, is returning a stack of, uh, sending out another stack of uh, letters from all the things we've gotten sent back to us over a faulty post office in the last uh, few months. Loose Nukes says, about four or five fewer hours to the day. Damn, that's good. <laughs> Joel G says the former guy and his family actually held accountable for all the hell they've done. Joel, there's a lot of former guys. Uh, Eat Fart 69, old pal, uh, sent a gif uh, that is a reference. uh, It's a small child with a switchblade comb demanding $2 cash, which is a reference to the 1980-something movie Better Off Dead, John Cusack. Okay. Uh, And then Chakan says 12 cents. (laughs) Aiming low on that one, Chakon. <laughs> that is a little low. Santa Nista says, same as always, a nice sandwich. And Graceful Carl, half declared, says, finally figure out who let the dogs out. That son of a gun owes me a new dog. Oh, my God. So the answers I liked most were I did like historic dog walks, 30 bucks, and I did like Loose Nuke saying four or five fewer hours to the day. I also like Kim G saying improved posture, Chris B saying a kiss on the lips, Braden S. saying, no thanks, I'll take minus 1% worse. If my math checks out, that's 1% better, right? I have no idea, Braden, that you're asking me to do math. Neil says, taking away the 99%, that makes it worse. And Jeff Guy saying, abolishing the 1%, of course. So, I don't know. Alex, got any selections as to what... Who should be winning this week's question, Mel? Personally, I liked Barrett M's A Kiss on the Cheek from Jessica Chanstein or Jennifer Lawrence because I'm appreciating the new level of slightly horny, <laughs> politely horny things happening in the comments, but I'll defer to you on this one. I will one-up you on that and say I'm going to go with Chris B and A Kiss on the Lips because that's even less likely than A Kiss on the Cheek from <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence or Jessica Chastain. I can't remember who those celebrities are. So, uh, Chris B., you are the winner of this week's Question from Hell. For your response to this week's Question from Hell, what will make your life 1% better? Chris B. said a kiss on the lips. Congratulations. Just tell us what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want, Chris, from what is available at thisishell.com when you click on support, and we'll get it in the mail to you post-haste. Haste, my answer to this week's question from hell, what would make your life 1% better, is, well, not settling for 1% better and trying to make my life 10, if not 100% better. And that's why I do not invest in cryptocurrency and instead invest in something that actually has a chance at paying off. And that's the lottery. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. Alex, do we have any idea of who's going to be on next week's show? Uh, yeah, we're working on Monday, Tuesday, but we're real excited for Wednesday when Naomi Oreskes will be on to talk about her Gizmodo report, how big oil rigs the system to keep winning, how big oil rigs the system to keep winning. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by, reve- by revealing this week's hangover cure and this week's hangover cure with our apologies. There is no hangover cure, although clove extract, tulfanamic acid, and 
pyridinol have shown some success in addressing hangover symptoms. Thanks to this week's guests in order, Peter James Hudson, who wrote the Boston Review article, Frederick Douglass, an American Empire in Haiti. Thanks to Nicholas Mulder, author of The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War. And thanks to today's guest, Aaron Van Singen, who wrote the Uneven Earth article, Faith in a Frail World. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. Also thanks to Richard uh, Norwood for running the board this week. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth and Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in rotten history. Talk to you on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell now streaming live and posted on Thursdays when I will be making very suspect predictions about 2022 and we'll be sharing interview or interviews we did with Kathy Kelly back in the 20th century when Kathy and her colleagues were fighting against deadly U.S. sanctions imposed upon the people of Iraq. Finally, as I was saying earlier, we got some more of those uh, prints from the great people over at Kennedy Prints in on Detroit's east side over the holidays and we wanted to share the couple of inspirational quotes they sent us. The first was, or is by Andre Lord, Audre Lord, sorry, Audre Lord. Life is very short and what we do must be done in the now. That's pretty inspirational. And the other one is by Thurgood, Thurgood Marshall of all people. In recognizing the humanity of our fellow beings, we pay ourselves the highest tribute. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Kennedy Prince as well. Thanks to Alexander Jerry again. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've in- introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the very simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Ah. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>